exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. O God, each part, each piece of our lives resides in you. May we allow light to shine on it all. May we even find comfort in declaring to you that we feel as though we have been utterly abandoned. May we be that integrated. And may we hear you declare to every fabric of our being, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Amen. And please be seated. We are currently in a sermon series exploring our church's values. In light of all that we have been facing, it's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can reground and retether us. In all that we have been facing, it's our sincere hope here at Pearl that our values can cast an elevated vision for the kind of community the kind of community that we want to be, no matter what we face in the world. Values are to Uh, ground us, tether us, uh, hold up before us that which we desire to be, even when we've forgotten that which it is that we desire to be. And so whether you've been here forever and you've heard us talk about our values several times or you're brand new, it's our sincere hope that these values give you a window into the soul of this church uh, that many of us call home. So far, we've considered our values of gratitude, inclusion, renewal, peace, and transformation. This morning, we're going to consider our value of integration, and then next week, we will conclude this series by looking at a new value, which we've been working on as a board and as a pastoral staff, uh, which is the value of equity. But for now, this morning, integration. About this value, we write, Jesus was present to every person and every moment, from the innocent to the unnoticed, from the wilderness to the cross. He knew that even the outcast, even shadows have a place. We therefore value embracing every person and engaging every moment, trusting that everything belongs. (sighs) Integration is the action or process of integrating. Don't you just love definitions like that? (laughs) Love. Uh, Love is the action or process of loving. (laughs) It's so unhelpful. Uh, To integrate is to combine one thing with another thing so that they become together a whole thing. A whole thing. In other words, without all of those pieces coming together, the whole is less than whole. And the opposite of integration is disintegration which is the process of losing cohesion or wholeness. And so pieces and parts are either able to integrate or pieces and parts are able to further and further fracture and split, which is to disintegrate. And at Pearl, we sincerely see the work of God as a work of integration, 
not a work of disintegration. In fact, we see integration as God's dream for the entire world. About this, we write, our dream that we imagine and desire is nothing less than God's dream, the consummation of peace in a world that has been integrated by divine love. We go on to write, the scriptures tell a story that begins with God placing two people in a garden and instructing them to multiply, to steward creation, and to cultivate the land. At the end of the story, the very end, these two have multiplied into a throng of humanity, and all of creation which began in a garden is cultivated into a heavenly kingdom marked by peace. It is truly a world in full bloom. You see, the end, the very end of the story isn't a disintegrated world split into smaller and smaller parts and people and tribes and pieces. Instead, the end, the very end that we see in the book of Revelation is an integrated world in which parts and pieces and tribes and people have been united into a whole because they have learned to truly love. It is a whole world filled with whole people who live wholly before self others, and before God. This is the very thing, integration, that is remembered and celebrated and foreshadowed here at this table that we celebrate and feast at each week, sometimes called the Lord's table. This table gives us a taste of a future wedding feast in which heaven and earth, the spiritual and the physical, are fully integrated. You see, it's a single bride, no longer fractured, but a unified humanity, and it's God, no longer afar, apart, away. It's a single bride and the divine wed. This is a biblical metaphor that we're given. It's the divine and the human, the bride, married. To use contemporary language to explain this biblical metaphor of marriage, it is integration. That is what this marriage supper of the Lamb is. It is utmost integration at every level. It is this, all of this, including your whole self as a unified whole. Now, I think an important question for us to ask is, okay, so if integration is a value of this community, how do we, how do we move toward this cosmic integration? And yet, before we solve integration on a cosmic level, we have to begin on a personal level. And so I'd like us to begin this morning by asking, how do I, how can we, move ourselves toward integration. Now, depending on your background, experiences, and faith tradition, this may be a new kind of question for you to consider. Some of us have been taught that to become whole, we must disintegrate, right? Like, stop doing that, ignore that part of you, die to those desires and dreams inside of you, and eventually you'll become so holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, that you'll no longer be human. You'll be a fully spiritual being. Of course, I don't know about you, but that sounds miserable to me. Miserable. If holiness is something less than wholeness, I'm not sure that I want it. I don't want to be less me. I don't want you to be less you. I mean, cut out all the stuff that makes me, me, and cut out all of the stuff that makes you, you, and, and become so spiritual that you are no longer human? I don't know if that's good news. It doesn't feel like good news to me. But furthermore, it makes me want to ask, is that what the divine desires? The divine who birthed us here in the world as humans? Is the divine just dying for us to become something less than human? I don't think it is. 
It's certainly not what we see at the end of the scriptures in which very human beings are living in a very physical world that has been made new. And it's not what we see in Jesus' incarnation. The whole idea of the incarnation is this union between the divinity and the humanity in which both fully dwell. I think that's one reason for why the Apostle Paul calls Christ the new Adam. As I understand it, the new Adam gives shape to a revolutionary way of seeing and being in the world in which children of this new Adam come to realize the divine in us, human beings. Now, that doesn't sound good to the ear, but it's really solid theology. The divine in us, human beings. The divine in us, human beings. The divine in them, the divine in him, in her, in they. The divine in us, human beings. You see, the work of God literally in Christ from the beginning is a work of integration. And so let me ask a few very important questions. What if the work of God isn't about making us something less human? And what if the work of God is about making us more fully human? And one more question. What if part of following Christ is to recognize and to rest into the reality of human and divine integration? What if that is part of what this incarnated Christ is doing in the world? Well, if this is all true, and I think it is, then there is an indivisibility between our humanity and the divine. And so, for example, that breath you breathe is both human and divine. That thing that you do, no matter what it is that you do, is both human and divine. That thing that you think, human and divine. That thing you did, that thing that happened, the good, the bad, the joyful, the tragic, the life, the death, it is all human and divine. The deepest part of you, your truest self, the shallowest part of you, even your false self, your personality and sexuality and all of their fragments in pieces, it is all both human and divine. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. And so I want to say again and again, beloved of God, there is no need to pretend. There is no need to hide. There is no need to be something else. There is no need to be someone else. Now, does that mean that there's no need to grow or to transform? Of course not. As Pastor Ben shared last week about our value of transformation, the divine is inviting each of us into wondrous metamorphosis through which we come to live more fully. But here's the thing. Transformation isn't about becoming something else so that God might come near or enter within because God is already near and within. Furthermore, those parts and pieces that you don't think belong They actually really, truly do belong. They even belong to God. Even what you might call the shadows of yourself, those even belong. For even the shadows are a necessary part of what you are becoming because all, everything, every thought, deed, dream, trait, and part of you already belongs. Now, before going further, I imagine that some of you, especially those of you who grew up in the church, may be thinking something like, man, Mike, that sounds pretty great. 
But what about original sin? <laughs> is that kind of bouncing around in anybody's brain as I talk about how every part of us belongs? For those of you who do not know what original sin is, original sin is perceived to occur in Genesis chapter three, which tells the story of Adam and Eve disobeying God by eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result, Adam and Eve are sent outside of the garden east of Eden. And based on this story, the theory of original sin states that in that moment, when that happened, when they ate the fruit and they were sent outside of the garden, original sin states that the world was abruptly and catastrophically altered. And in that moment, human beings became inherently depraved. Every single human being, born and unborn. Now, we could spend many hours talking about this, but I don't think a sermon is the best place for this kind of conversation. It's a long conversation. We intentionally dismantle this theology in our Reconstructing Christianity class. But put simply, I believe with my whole heart that original sin is one of the most harmful theologies that has ever risen from the church in this world. And it's an absolute travesty that it continues to exist as a way of thinking about this world and its people. A few brief thoughts. First, if original sin is really a thing, like, like if Adam and Eve did this thing and it catastrophically altered the world in every human born and unborn, isn't it peculiar that the remainder of the Hebrew scriptures never talk about it? Never. I mean, outside of Genesis chapters one through four, Adam and Eve are never mentioned again. They're just mentioned once or twice in genealogies which makes no sense if they truly altered the world and the human condition. And then, of course, there's Jesus, which to Christians is kind of important, right? <laughs> Jesus never talks about original sin or inherent depravity of humankind. Never. In fact, it's not until Augustine comes along in the fourth century that we even hear the words original sin. Augustine coined this. And here's what Augustine wrote about original sin. Our fallenness or our quote-unquote guilty nature is transmitted through sexual union beginning with Adam and Eve and then passed down through the hereditary line of their children. And this brings me to a second thought, which is we didn't all come from Adam and Eve. I mean, the science is clear. Even if we agree to say that there was a literal Adam and Eve, let's just say there was a literal Adam and Eve, it is an impossibility that every human is a descendant of their particular line. And so according to Augustine's theory, anyone who is connected to their line is a depraved person, but then I guess those who came from other hereditary lines would still be blameless. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? And so a guilty nature cannot truly be passed down through sexual union to every living human. And finally, one other thought. There's only one place in the Bible that's said to explain original sin. It's found in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, which is what led Augustine to believe that we have all sinned, Augustine writes, in Adam. And yet the majority of today's theologians agree that Augustine was working off a faulty Latin text. That's kind of scary, isn't it? And so, for example, even the highly esteemed, very conservative theologian Douglas Moo explains that that text is saying that we all sin like Adam, which is what the text is really saying. And that, if you think about it, is very different from saying in Adam, everyone has sinned. 
And so you see, do we like Adam assume knowledge and make choices that harm ourselves, others in this world? Yes. Of course we do. We all sin like Adam. You could say we are all children like Adam, but to be clear, that child who comes out of the womb, that child who comes out of the womb, or that toddler who begins to assert her will, or that teen who wakens to their body and the bodies of others, or that adult who has made a mess of his life, these are not inherently depraved humans. That is violent thinking. No, these are merely humans shaped by genetics and environments and tables and systems and stories that make for good or bad, flourishing or harm. And going one step further, it's never either or. We humans are not binary. We are in every moment good and bad, in every moment right and wrong, in every moment flourishing and harm, which is to simply say we are very truly human. And so so coming full circle now with all of these things in mind, those parts and pieces that you don't think belong, they actually do. They belong to God, even the shadows. For even the shadows are a necessary part of who you are and what you are becoming. And so rather than spend our precious lives believing the worst in ourselves and in others, let us embrace our common humanity and consider what it looks like to live an integrated life. A couple of years ago, I read an article that engaged two scholars. Uh, Christy Smith, the National Managing Principal at Deloitte University's Leadership Center for Inclusion, uh, was working with Kenji Yoshino, the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU. It's a mouthful, right? In the article, these two were interviewed by Stu Friedman, director of the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project. But the more words you use, the smarter people sound. <laughs> and throughout the article, they used the word covering. Hold on to that word. It sounds very familiar, doesn't it? The article states, what we saw in our research are three main things. First, covering is happening, not just in life or the law, but at work as well. 61% of our respondents said that they are actively involved in hiding an aspect of themselves while at work. I'm actually surprised it was only 61%. Second, as a result of the first, people are showing up feeling sub-optimized in their roles. And finally, people who cover or feel that they have to cover are contemplating walking out the door. This is no less true for the church, is it? The article goes on to say that covering is a systemic problem in most organizations, It states, instead of having diversity and inclusion, it is diversity or inclusion. You can be included so long as you downplay the things that make you different. And this finding led to another finding called affiliation-based covering. The article goes on to say, affiliation-based covering is the form of covering of behaviors that can trigger stereotypes about you. So the idea is that I might tell you very proudly that I'm a veteran, but I might not tell you that I have PTSD because I worry that will trigger you to have conscious or unconscious biases toward how I'm going to behave. Now, as groundbreaking as these findings may be, these are as ancient as ancient stories themselves. If you think back to our Genesis story about Adam and Eve in the garden, they've just eaten the forbidden fruit. And remember what they did afterward? They covered themselves with leaves and they hid themselves in trees. 
covering you see is a very ancient, very biblical idea. And do you know what the Bible calls covering? Hiding, pretending, shame. It also calls it a curse. It's a curse in each person. I will cover this, insert whatever this is. I will cover this for myself and not think about it or be near to it. I will push it down, ignore it, pretend it doesn't exist, which means to say, I'm going to pretend that I don't actually exist. It's also a curse in each organization. My inclusion is based on limiting my diversity. Maybe I'll let out a little bit of myself, but I will constantly assess how much is too much, and I will manage what I allow others to see. And covering is a curse in relationship to God. My inclusion in God is based on believing these tenets. My inclusion in God is based on behaving in these ways. My inclusion in God is dependent on not asking these questions. My inclusion in God is based on becoming something that I am not. And so, because our inclusion is based on palatable diversity, palatable being defined by self, society, organization, and religion, we often cover ourselves from ourselves. We cover ourselves from others and we cover ourselves from God. But what if part of Christ-like work in this world is to undo the curse of covering? What if the divine already resides in us all, integrated with our very humanity? And what if the church is supposed to be one of the places in life in which we learn the joy of the work, the wonder of integration? Be who you are. Be where you are. Today, right now, in all of your diversity, because if we're being truly honest, you can only be who you are and where you are in every moment. Our only option is to always be something less than what we actually are. And the divine is saying, be, be who you are and where you are, because this is who you are, and I am in you and with you, and always for you. Well, for being real honest about this, life together, and this kind of life together, I think life together might be a little terrifying, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be terrifying and vulnerable and messy and clarifying and healing, and I think wonderfully intoxicating especially if we are around others who are committed to holding us in the same love with which we are loved by the divine. And this, this is what I hope so deeply for our church. Okay, so that's one thing that we can do. How about we do this? We can uncover ourselves to ourselves. We can uncover ourselves to each other and we can uncover ourselves before God. We can tell our honest stories. We can share our sincere fears and we can trust that even if we are rejected, which I hope doesn't happen, especially here. We can trust without a doubt that we are not rejected by God in whom the book of Acts tells us we move and breathe and have our being. And here's another thought on the work of integration. And this is really hard for Christians, I think. We can live less in black and white. Black and white thinking is often called dualism. Dualism is the division of something conceptually into two opposed or contrasted aspects. Dualism is the state of being divided. Black and white, right and wrong, good and bad, in and out. Oh, but you see, so much of the gospel undoes dualism. Virgin and biological mother. Fully human and fully divine. Bread and body, blood and wine, death and resurrection. Notice in these paradoxes the word and, and. 
It's a simple three-letter word, and it's a profound conjunction. Uh, many of us here at Pearl adore Richard Rohr. <laughs> he writes about this beautiful word saying, and allows us to be both and. And keeps us from either or. And is willing to wait for insight and integration. And helps us to live in the always imperfect now. And always and allows us to critique both sides of things, and makes daily practical love possible, and does not trust love if it is not also justice, and does not trust justice if it is not also love, and is far beyond my religion versus your religion, and allows us to be both distinct and yet united. And. It's a word that opens our hearts to life's paradoxes. And it's a word that opens us to difference. It's a word that transforms us from certainty and absolutism to humility. And is a word that creates space for complexity. And can't we all just admit that this world is complex? And so much even about our own soul is ambiguous. And here's a final thought on the work of integration. Jesuits state that discernment isn't choosing between good and bad, but between various shades of good. Oh, I would love us to make that movement as a community. I'll say that again. Jesuits state that discernment isn't choosing between good and bad, but between various shades of good. This is helpful for me. Instead of thinking about avoiding bad, what if we were to consider that which is best? It would look something like this. Sure, I could think that, do that, live like that, be that, but there's something so much better that I want to think, do, live, be with my life today. And what if instead of shaming, guilt, and covering that cause us harm, what if we could dream about and talk about the good we desire to move toward as human beings? And more so, what if we could trust the wind of the spirit in every human being and so as opposed to projecting our assessment of good and best, we trust what every person is thinking about their own life. Near the beginning of the sermon, I asked, how do we move toward the cosmic integration that we see at the end of the scriptures? Answer, we begin here. We begin with ourselves. By valuing integration, we begin to undo this terrible habit of covering. By valuing integration, we transcend dualism. By valuing integration, we begin to dream about what is best for our lives. And by valuing integration, we come to find that even death and tombs are necessary parts of our resurrection day after day after day. And as integrated beings comprising an integrated church, well, it's then that we actually begin to participate in the divine dream of peace in a world that has been integrated by divine love. Let us pray. Oh God, each part, each piece of our lives resides in you. Shine on us. Shine in us and help us to move, to breathe, to live integrated lives. Trusting that everything belongs and is part of who we are right now, even this moment in this very room. this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, 
and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Thank you.